Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 207. We are rounding the corner and getting close to the end of the road when it comes to discussions about the limousine and its windshield. Hallelujah, right? This is the next to last episode, and in these last two episodes, you will now hear directly from Doug Weldon. In some ways, today's episode is a duplication of the lead-up to the Ford plant tale, I'm sorry for the redundancy, but the lead-up was oh-so-necessary to better understand the veracity of the claim about what really happened with the original windshield in Dearborn, Michigan at the Ford plant. Now you get to hear Doug Weldon, in his own words, telling the lead-up story. His original telling of it is better, if I do say so myself. And there is more to it, of course, than just what I have told. So if you listen to it carefully you'll glean a few more golden nuggets within from Doug himself. Now, you may decide to treat this as a bonus episode, although, as always, I recommend that you not do that. Whatever you do, don't miss Doug's storytelling in the next episode, episode 208, of what happened at the Ford plant. These two episodes have been extracted from Doug Weldon's presentation at a 1999 assassination conference held in Minnesota. At that time, he had not yet revealed the name of the Ford plant witness. Of course, we now know it was George Whitaker. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 207 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. I am one that does not tend to see conspiracy in many places. I want, I want you to understand that. But uh, there are things that are very disturbing. It came up yesterday about people like Robert Frazier with the FBI. And I recall very well a couple of years ago, major article, front page, New York Times, about the problems with the FBI lab evidence even as recently as those two years ago. And I hope that I tell this right, and I'm sure I'm quite accurate. There was an instance down in Florida that was particularly significant. There was a gentleman who was being tried for a capital crime, could be sentenced to death. The physical evidence that linked him to the crime was a blanket that they sent to the FBI lab to test to see if his hairs could be found on the blanket. The test came back to the Florida prosecutor's office, DA's office is positive, that his hairs matched hairs in the blanket. Lo and behold, about a week later, the Florida District Attorney's Office realized they had sent the FBI lab the wrong blanket. It had nothing to do with the case whatsoever. This is a guy that could have faced the death penalty. So I I, I do think that we have to be very cautious, suspicious, but again, you know, I've been involved 
with law enforcement for the majority of my career. So therefore, I, I guess I look at it with kind of a jaundiced eyes. My presentation will include excerpts from an interview I conducted in 1993. I'm going to read the excerpts to you, and you're going to actually hear the excerpts played on audio. Candidly, as naive as I am sometimes, I did not appreciate the significance of the information that was conveyed to me at the time of the interview. I thought it was interesting, maybe a small piece of the puzzle of the assassination, but today I find that piece of the evidence is comparable to what people thought was a small scrape on the side of the Titanic. The information obtained that day, combined with an examination of the totality of the evidence, should cause each one of us to reevaluate our thoughts about what occurred with the death of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I have personally interviewed many, many people with connections to the assassination, including a good number of members of the Dallas Police Department who played an important role in the events that day. I think many members of the Dallas Police Department of 1963 have been unfairly criticized over the ensuing years. We will never know what kind of investigation they would have conducted because they were deprived of the opportunity to examine much of the evidence. Though I believe it is possible, and I got to agree with George Michael, it's perhaps probable that some members of the Dallas police may have cooperated with the falsification of evidence, or perhaps in a more sinister fashion, the officers I have spoken with, and especially those on the lower level, I've got to say, I mean, I've interviewed people like John Carl Day for four and a half hours in this home. I have some suspicions. I'm suspicious of people like Fritz. But the people that were on the lines, I have the utmost respect for. These people were committed to the service of justice. Unfortunately, some members of another group who also were sworn to have been committed to the same standards of justice and who also had members of their group in Dallas that day did not permit the legally proper handling of evidence by the Dallas police. And those members of that group worked for the United States Secret Service. I thought it was ironic yesterday with the Bugliosi, the simulation of the Oswald trial, where he asked the guy on the stand, do you think anybody in the Secret Service was involved? And the guy on the stand kind of laughed, kind of saying, of course not. Well, I think we need to reexamine that. What I present today will just be a small portion. And it's not an indictment of all of the Secret Service were there, but I'm going to give you some tidbits along the way of some things that were highly suspicious. Few people would argue against the position that the most important piece of evidence of the crime in Dallas was the president's body. It is well documented that the body was illegally removed by force from Parkland Hospital by the United States Secret Service. However, another piece of evidence was also removed, removed that day. That evidence was second importance only to the body because at the time, despite efforts to do so, and you'll see some of those efforts today, it was evidence that really could not be altered at the crime scene in Dallas. That evidence was also removed from Parkland Hospital. It was also removed by the Secret Service of the United States. That evidence would have perhaps told us a different story than what we later heard as the official explanation from the government. Of course, I'm referring to the presidential limousine. <laughs> 
That limousine may yet tell us another story today. I'm going to address two questions. The first question is what happened to the limousine after the assassination and try to answer why. Second, can we now provide a reasonable explanation for the likely origin of the shot that caused the entrance wound to the throat of the president? My presentation will concentrate mainly on the damage by the rearview mirror done to the windshield. I will not explore in great depth today the hole that was alleged to have been in the floor pan or the damage done to the chrome by the windshield or perhaps some other damage. These are issues that merit further attention, but even with the gracious time I'm given today, it constricts an, a, a fair examination of those issues. I mean, literally, as I've interviewed people over the years, I've had people in their 80s that I've interviewed, Dallas police officer that did not want to talk to me because he, re, and this is fairly recently, because he did not want a bullet in his head. I mean, this is not a hobby. It's, it's not a game. I take this very, very seriously. On a less serious note, I want to know that I come before you. I know I have certain liabilities being an attorney. The first time I ever met Jim Fetzer, he came up to me and he said, Doug, you're, you're an attorney, aren't you? I said, yeah, Jim, I, I, I am. He says, did you hear about that accident where these attorneys were on a group trip and a bus went off a cliff and 99 attorneys were killed on the bus? He says, that was a terrible tragedy. I said, well, I thought it was kind of a bizarre thing to be telling me first meeting Jim. But I said, yeah, Jim, I agree. That, but that's, that's a horrible tragedy. He says, no, Doug, I don't think you understand. The tragedy is that there was one empty seat. <laughs> but, but Jim has come around, and he has acknowledged to me recently that it is really 99% of the attorneys that give the rest of us a bad name. <laughs> It is important to understand, and, it's, and I know many of you know this, but a lot of you are new to this conference, that in 1963, there was no federal statute that made it a crime to kill the President of the United States. No federal law addressed that whatsoever. Legally, this was a simple murder from a legal standpoint that should have been governed by the statutes of the state of Texas. Texas had the sole authority the sole authority to investigate the crime, to take evidence into their custody, to perform the autopsy on the deceased president, and pursue any criminal prosecution. The FBI and the Secret Service usurped that Texas authority. Reports surfaced that the president's body was taken by the Secret Service with guns drawn in the exercise of force. Most state statutes today would hold the individuals involved in these kind of actions criminally responsible for the obstruction of justice. Furthermore, there exists compelling evidence that certain members of those government agencies engaged in the destruction and fabrication of evidence in a capital crime. By a capital crime in Texas, the murder of somebody could be punishable by death. Under statutes today, somebody doing what the Secret Service and the FBI believe that it can be proven that they did, the individuals, could be facing a sanction of incarceration in prison for up to life for any term of years. The government's official version of events of what happened after the assassination appears very simple if one conducts a cursory examination. 
that story explains that the limousine was flown to Washington, D.C. on the evening of November 22, 1963. It remained in the White House garage under the supervision of the Secret Service until, according to James Rowley, head of the Secret Service, it was, think of this, driven to Dearborn, Michigan, approximately 500 miles on December 20, 1963, to redesign a bubble top. The vehicle was then driven from Dearborn, Michigan to Cincinnati, Ohio on December 24, 1963 to manufacture and install a bullet-resistant bubble top. This was the explanation when Mr. Fetzer writes his book. When I complete a book, hopefully within the next year, you'll see the documentation. I didn't bring everything today that uh, Mr. Rowley, head of the Secret Service, this was the explanation he provided to J. Lee Rankin General Counsel of the Warren Commission in a letter dated January 6, 1964. Now that version of events has been suspect for many years, though proofs to the contrary have not emerged in any substantive or detailed form. There was a lot of reporting that provided different scenarios as to what happened to the limousine after the assassination. I think it's important to examine some of these different versions of what supposedly happened in the aftermath of the assassination. Now some of these things are just stories, but the fact that such numerous and various varying stories exist should cause one to be suspicious. The House Select Committee in its tenure became very confused about what happened to the limousine. In an examination, and you're gonna see the chronology of 11 specific dates, well, I'm not sure that I brought that on the overhead. In an examination of 11 dates regarding the limousine, beginning November 22nd, they noted that there were clear discrepancies in testimony about four of the dates when they developed their chronology. <coughs> clear, clear discrepancies. And if you read the chronology, there's actually more than four out of the 11 things. There's actually more than four. In an article in Car Exchange published in 1983, it was reported the limousine was delivered around December 12, 1963, to Hessen Eisenhardt, who performed the custom work on automobiles. However, House Select Committee was able to get the documentation. The official records of Hessen Eisenhardt show that the vehicle was delivered to them on December 13, 1963. This contradicts the information provided by James Raleigh to Mr. Rankin in his January 6, 64 letter. Remember, Mr. Raleigh says the limousine is in the White House garage until December 20th. Hessen Eisenhardt's official records show they received the vehicle December 13th. No record exists anywhere. Newspaper article, magazine, anything. N news, radio, TV, other than James Raleigh's assertion that the limousine was driven anywhere. I challenge anybody to show me one newspaper article, radio, or television report discussing this limousine being driven hundreds of miles in the harsh winters of Michigan and Ohio in December of 1963. Common sense, common sense dictates that the Secret Service would not risk a breakdown. I mean, who are they going to call it, AAA, a flat tire? Or the apparent need to drive that far to refuel the vehicle in this bloody limousine on the highways or back roads of this country, especially with always the risk of inclement, inclement weather. It would not, this car would not have been driven anywhere for such a great distance. 
James Raleigh, chief of the Secret Service, common sense here tells you, was not telling the truth. And there is no documentation, no corroboration to show anything different. I was never able to get a hold of Crenshaw. I know he's had some health problems, but it, he was, of course, the physician president at Parkland Hospital in 1963. And I like John Armstrong. I don't like, though I've read so many books, I don't like to rely on what's said in books. And I'm only quoting this out of his book to show that it is another story that was told that has some suspicious and interesting undertones to it. In his book, JFK Conspiracy of Silence, he wrote that three days after the assassination, Carl Renus, head of security for the Dearborn Division, keep that in mind, of the Ford Motor Company, three days after the assassination, this is not so far off, drives the limousine, helicopters hovering overhead from Washington to Cincinnati. Well, that didn't happen. I mean, if you th again, if you think that this limousine is going to travel the hundreds of miles to Cincinnati, Ohio, there'd be some report, some story, something somewhere about these helicopters hovering overhead. But Crenshaw says and noted several bullet holes, the most notable being the one in the windshield's chrome molding strip. You're going to see a slide of that. I'm not going to address that today. Roy might a little bit, which was clearly a primary strike and not a fragment. The limousine was driven by Renus to Hessen Eisenhart in Cincinnati, where the chrome molding was replaced. A couple interesting little tw twists, if there's some half-truths to this. The Secret Service told Renus to keep your mouth shut. Now, Renus was no dummy. He recalls thinking at the time, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Though, again, there's no f record in any form of media that would support this story. This is a very, Carl Re of Carl Renus. This, sh this should be something very interesting to consider. We're going to talk about a guy in a minute named F. Vaughn Ferguson. And again, I think what is unique about this Rena story is Secret Service Ford Motor Company. Another author noted, Gary Shaw, within 48 hours of the shots in Daly Plaza, this is close. These things are not new. As there are things, as Deb Conway would said, that many of us are just retreading the path that has been set before, of it, before us. The, within 48 hours of the shots in Daly Plaza, the Kennedy death car was shipped to the Ford Motor Company in Detroit and completely destroyed as far as evidence was concerned. Late Penn Jones, Jr., another one who I consider a giant, recounted essentially the same information. Now let's go to one of the most intriguing accounts and this is F. Vaughn Ferguson, and I feel compelled to address this. There has been a recently declassified interoffice memorandum, and I brought the memorandum for inclusion, Jim, if you want to include in your book. Uh, it, it's dated December 18, 1963, and it describes him being in the White House garage from November 23rd through November 27, 1963. It also kind of leaves you the impression that he was thereafter November 27th. He provides in that memorandum some graphic details such as cleaning blood. And this would be good. If you can't get this memorandum anywhere else, I think we ought to find a way to distribute this to at least at the conference attendees. But, but it's, it's available. Pam McElwain's site on the Internet has it. Uh, he talks about how he cleaned blood from the vehicle and actually removed and installed new carpeting. In his test, he testified to the House Select Committee 
that he was the individual that actually drove the limousine to Dearborn, Michigan on December 20, 1963. Now, this story is consistent with James Rowley. The two are singing out of the same hymnal. But in one of my interviews, I've, I've actually been talking to Willard Hess, one of the co-owners of Hess and Eisenhart. He's 93 years old, remarkable man. Uh, he said this could not have happened. Again, their official records show they had the limousine on December 13th. But Mr. Hess was also shocked that he was only contacted one time by anybody, and that was by the Warren Commission, and asked a very innocuous question. He's puzzled as to why he was not questioned about these events, things going on with the limousine. It was the only official contact, he told me, that was ever made with him. If we exercise some careful scrutiny, we see some notable flaws with Ferguson's account of his involvement. Two of the four discrepancies noted by the House Select Committee's chronology related to Mr. Ferguson's testimony. And if we closely examine the memorandum, we have some curious findings. Here's how Mr. Ferguson describes the windshield he sees on November 23, 1963. Examination of the windshield disclosed no perforation. I'm going to get to this again when I talk about the FBI examination. Discloses, this is going to be important, discloses no perforation but substantial cracks radiating a couple of inches from the center of the windshield at a point directly, I want to emphasize the word directly, beneath the mirror. I have an open invitation to anyone, though I'm going to demonstrate today that this windshield was replaced and altered, show me one diagram report or picture that shows a crack or damage at a point directly beneath the mirror. Show me one. I've never seen one. This is what he describes. Did he really see the windshield? I don't know. And the alternative, is this going to be an example, this memorandum, of evidence of the cooperation and complicity between the Ford Motor Company and the United States Secret Service to distort the actual record as to what really happened in the limousine upon its return to Washington, D.C. I'm going to have an overhead, Jim, in just a second. Can you help me out? I want the White House garage logs. And there are two, so we're going to, have to put them on one at a time. He says he's there on November 23rd, 1963. You can see the dates of people they log in, everybody that checks in to the White House garage. Look at November 23rd date. It's about five down past the names. If we can show these, this slide has both the names of the people checking in, the people checking them in. And the other portion of that shows why they were there. Do you see Ferguson's name there on November 23rd? 23rd. 23rd. Isn't, his name's not there. You can look forever. It's not there. Now, this may not be conclusive. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt of sinister actions. But if his name, if he's not required to log in, 
What unique status did he have when all of these other people were required to log into the White House garage if they're going to have access to the limousine? This is especially important on this November 23rd date, the date he claims he first examines the vehicle. And if they got sloppy about who's going to be allowed access to the vehicle, it's certainly not going to be in those early days. There is also some critical information. I want you to look at the November 25th date. This is going to be very critical. It's going to be of paramount importance when you weigh the credibility of the statement of the witness that I interviewed from the Ford Motor Company. There, on November 25th, there are only two people checking in, one at 12, 10 a.m. in the morning, and the purpose of that check-in was to check the, it'll show the purpose. Yeah, I've got one here. November 25th, the other side of this sheet, which Jim has, I don't know, if, oh, it shows it right here. It's a heat check. He's checking the heat, a heater there. The other on November 25th, 5.15 a.m. is checked in, and it's going to show on the other sheet it's to repair an elevator. Neither of these two people have anything to do with the limousine. November 25th, keep this in mind. November 25th, nobody comes in to see that limousine. Nobody checks into the White House garage. Was the vehicle in the White House garage on November 25th, 1963? Why do we have two stories with what I've told you? With one Ford Motor Company employee, Carl Renas, saying he was driving the car three days after the assassination, and another Ford Motor Company employee, F. Vaughn Ferguson, stating something totally contradictory. If you want to ask me during the questions, I want to state now, too, ask me as hard a question as you want to when this is over. I've also found some interesting things about the persona in talking to Willard Hess, who knew Mr. Ferguson. Ferguson's account is also confusing in light of Rowley's January 6th memorandum to Rankum in 1964. In that memorandum, which will also be one of the documents I'm going to provide to Jim, Rowley noted that Secret Service agent Morgan Geis of the White House garage detail requested permission to clean the blood from the back seat on November 23rd because the odor supposedly was becoming bothersome to him. According to Rowley, permission was given to him, to Special Officer William Davis and White House Police Officer Andrew Hutch to remove the bloodstains on late Sunday evening, November 24th, 1963. Where was Ferguson at this time? Ferguson said he was there. Why did Ferguson document in his memorandum that he was the one who cleaned the vehicle when Raleigh said it's these three other people? Raleigh failed to mention that Ferguson had done anything to clean the limousine. Ferguson's memorandum had said that the Secret Service had helped clean the upholstery on November 23rd, not November 24th, like Raleigh said. Why did the stories conflict? These are not things that are re called years and years later. This is at the time. 
His memorandum is December 18th, close proximity to when these events happened. And again, we have the documents such as the White House garage logs. A further review of the evidence is also very revealing. Warren Commission 1964 was also provided some more confusing information that was never resolved. The record is clear that after the limousine arrived in Washington, D.C. on November 22, 1963, the FBI conducted an examination of the vehicle sometime after 1 a.m. on November 23rd. The FBI team was composed of agents Oren Bartlett, Charles Killiam, Cortland Cunningham, Robert Frazier, the expert on all the technical evidence, and Walter Thomas. Again, Jim will have this document in his book, and I'll have it in my book also when I complete it. But they specifically noted in their examination that there was no hole in the windshield. Let me see if I, I may have brought that. No, I, bought, I brought the Taylor one. Shoot. I had that on an overhead. Um, I guess I, I omitted to pack it. But they, said, they, they make a special mention in their examination saying that there's no hole in the windshield. This is quite interesting when you think about it. Why would someone doing an examination of something make a special point in observing what is not present? If I was asked to describe to Jim today, and he asked me what kind of shirt is Jim wearing, would I say he's wearing a red shirt, or would my response be, well, he wasn't wearing a blue, he's not wearing a blue shirt today? What would my response logically be? Why did they have to address the question of a hole in the windshield if there was no hole? However, significantly, there were a couple of Secret Service agents who had examined that windshield a little earlier that evening. Go over the chronology. The limousine departed Parkland Hospital at approximately 2.04 p.m. on November 22, 1963. It was driven by Secret Service agent George Hickey, Jr., and a Dallas police officer. It was placed aboard a cargo plane, which was an Air Force C-130, and flown to Washington. The plane arrived officially at Andrews Air Force Base at 8 p.m. Now, I don't know why did it take so long. I, I don't know what to make of this, and I'm not attaching any sinister explanation. But why did it take over five hours to fly that limousine from Dallas to Washington, D.C.? I don't know what to make of that. Special Agent Samuel Kinney, accompanied by Agent Charles Taylor, Jr., drove the vehicle under police escort to the White House garage. Mr. Taylor was in a unique an ideal position to carefully view the windshield damage. And we're going to put his overhead of his report up now. Okay. I can find my uh, laser. I want to show you something. I, I got it. Sees the same windshield, the FBI team says no hole. In addition, a particular note was a small hole just left of center in the windshield from which what appeared to be bullet fragments were removed. 
looking at the same windshield. With my suspicions of the Secret Service, it is obvious to me that Charles Taylor was not part of the reindeer games that day. Uh, how do we reconcile this? Did someone fail to instruct? And he was all, this was also observed with him by Harry Geiglin, and the report was made to Mr. Geiglin. Did someone fail to instruct Taylor and Geiglin about what they were to place in their reports? How can they examine the same windshield and note startling evidence that is totally opposite to the observations of the FBI team? They see the windshield just right before the FBI does. Further controversy emerged. After the examination of the windshield in Washington, D.C. on the evening of the assassination, a windshield was removed from the automobile the next week and stored in the White House garage. This is the official story. Remember, oh, I'm going to talk to you about Ferguson. In March 1964, the Secret Service sent a windshield to the FBI laboratory, which determined that it contained no hole, only damage to the inside surface, outside surface. The inside surface was smooth. This is the March FBI report. However, if we go back to James Rowley's memorandum on January 6, 1964, a little bit different. Mr. Rowley mentions two other agents who were present when the limousine arrived there. We now believe those agents were Special Officer William Davis and Special Agent Morgan Geis. It was claimed, according to Rowley, that they ran their hands over the windshield and the outside surface was smooth and unbroken. Outside smooth. Try to keep that in their mind. However, neither the FBI report nor the Secret Service report, who notes everybody there, mentions these two people. Rowley also failed to admit any reference to the hole that Charles Taylor had put in his report. Rowley's the head of the Secret Service. These reports get directed up to him. I guess just an oversight by Mr. Rowley. On November 27, 1963, agent, Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman, who was well known for being in the passenger seat of the Kennedy limousine when Kennedy was killed, uh, claimed that he examined the windshield a short time before it was removed from the limousine. His examination of the windshield was consistent with Raleigh's assertion that he ran his hand over the outside of the windshield and he found it to be smooth. He stated he saw some damage on the inside of the windshield. In Kellerman's mind, since the outside is smooth and damage is on the inside, logically that indicates a shot from the rear. However, however, the windshield that was in the Kennedy limousine on the day of the assassination was made of safety glass. Safety glass was not necessarily commonly used at that time in our history. But the interesting thing about safety glass it responds to an object striking its surface in the opposite way of regular glass. A shot through safety glass will leave the outside surface smooth and the inside surface will fragment. And I have an overhead on that. Yeah, flip it. So, yeah, no, all the way. So, no, flip it. One, yep. Hits the outside of the windshield with safety glass, the way safety glass is designed, 
penetrates the windshield, all the fragmentation is on the inside with safety glass. So what these two people were describing is damage caused from the front. Agent Morgan Geis, who was on the White House detail, made the same error after the vehicle had been placed in the White House garage. When the vehicle was being stored there, he claimed he looked across the hood of the car, staying, stating whatever it is, the crack is in, on the outside, this side is smooth. This side is smooth. Of further interest, we've got Kellerman examining the windshield on November 27th. We look at F. Vaughn Ferguson's memorandum again. He says that personnel from the Arlington Glass Company removed the windshield on November 25, 1963. His memorandum specifically records that the windshield was placed in a stock room under lock and key at the White House garage. When he writes the memorandum on December 18th, he is unequivocal that he had not seen the windshield since November 25th when they put it under lock and key. If this is accurate, how could Agent Roy Kellerman see a windshield on November 27th, two days after it's placed under lock and key? If Mr. Ferguson's memorandum is accurate and he was in the White House garage on that, locked away, what windshield did Kellerman see? What was really going on? They both cannot be accurate, and perhaps both of them are not. But who was not telling the truth and why? Is it possible that neither were telling the truth? Again, we don't have people being logged in November 25th. When Kellerman finally got around to testifying before the Warren Commission in March 1964, he did a U-turn on his original observation. He was asked to run his hand over the inside of the windshield, and he said uh, the exact opposite, noting the inside feels rather smooth today. This change statement was now consistent with an object striking the windshield from the rear. And also, however, it was quite obvious that the windshield that was before the Warren Commission, I will agree, did not have any hole in it. There's no hole in Exhibits 350, 351 that are presented to the Warren Commission. Uh, another researcher long ago, Robert Smith, interviewed Bill Ashby, who was a crew leader of the Arlington Glass Company team. Mr. Ashby claims he removed the windshield on November 27th. He recalled that the inside of the windshield was damaged, consistent with the damage occurring from the outside. But one windshield that he remove if Ferguson was correct in noting the windshield had already been moved and stored away on November 25th. Again, if Ferguson is credible, why is there not any record of anyone, any people coming in, yet people from the Arlington Glass Company coming into the garage on November 25th? Because you will see if we saw that on November 27th, it isn't a thing. There are people that Ashby does check in on November 27th. But something's going on. But I'm going to suggest to you when you finish hearing my presentation, it doesn't matter what they did on November 27th. The windshield that was in Kennedy's limousine in Dallas is no longer there. Another windshield is there. 
Mr. Ferguson, again, I, I want to point out again in his memorandum, was, did just like the FBI agents. He reports the absence of the whole. Does the same thing. Yeah, let's excuse the FBI. Yeah, we're looking at this. We don't see a hole. I mean, how far do you go in examining a windshield? Yes, there were no pictures of signatures of Bob Hope. There were no pictures of <laughs> Fred Flintstone. I mean, you don't describe the negative. Ferguson does the same thing that the FBI agents does. Goes out of his way to note something that is not present. There have been rumors for many years that the Secret Service ordered up to 21 windshields for the limousine soon after the assassination. Rumors have been floating. I can't document this, but they've, they've been out there since 1964. And when I talk about the gentleman from Ford, there's some other interesting information I might be able to respond to you on that. But why would they order 21 windshields for this limousine after the assassination, up to 21? Could this be significant? In light of all the differing stories, did they have to have a large number of windshields on hand in an effort to duplicate the approximate damage that was evident in the limousine in Dallas? They're not going to get it right. If, if, let's say, for example, they're going to try to duplicate the damage and leave out the hole. They're not going to get it right on their first try. And maybe this is why people are describing the windshield differently, smooth on the outside, Smooth on the inside, smooth both sides. But if that was their intent, that would explain why they would need so many windshields. Did the Secret Service substitute a windshield with a crack they fabricated and was at the windshield Ashby and Kellerman examined on November 27th? Is that why they described a windshield with inside damage indicating a shot from the front? Did the Secret Service then realize that safety glass shatters in the opposite direction? of regular glass forcing them to again substitute another windshield? Is this why the glass keeps getting described in these various ways and why Kellerman's testimony changed? Kellerman, the one time he could not lie was before the Warren Commission because at that time they could verify the condition of the glass for themselves. In an unexplainable twist, William Greer, the driver of the fateful limousine, continued to tell researchers and friends years later, right up to the day that he died, that there was no damage at all to the windshield. I mean, even Exhibits 350-351 and what we see in the National Archives today has very clear damage. Greer says, nope, never was any damage. This is contrary to any piece of evidence proffered to anyone. In another undated letter, but apparently mailed in March 1964, Rankin, who was again senior counsel for the Warren Commission, informed J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, that the windshield has a marking which was apparently caused by a hard object hitting the windshield. And he says at this point, the windshield appears to be smooth on both sides. Was the windshield changed again? Again, you can go to the National Archives in College Park, Maryland today. You don't need to do that if you get Harrison Livingston's newest version of high treason he's got a picture of the windshield. You can accept that the cracks would have extended, but I ask you to just examine for yourself, do these cracks appear the same as Warren Commission's exhibits 350 and 351? You cannot, in changing the windshield, duplicate the exact damage each time. Doug, it's also in high treason and in the killing of a president. Well, he's got, in the new one, he's got the, the latest version when he's gone back to the archives. 
it's an updated version that they allow them access of the windshield. And it shows it sitting in the crate. So that's what I ask you to compare. One of the tests of truth or veracity in our legal system, if you don't have physical evidence, or the physical evidence is questionable, is independent corroboration. That is, I agree with David Mantic that in our legal system, eyewitness testimony can be very, very credible. Eyewitness testimony can be bad. Scientific testimony can be bad. Either can be good. But we give more weight to eyewitness testimony when it's based upon salient facts and also when two people that have no contact with each other say they saw this and describe the same thing. Such corroboration exists here. There are many people who witnessed a hole in the limousine windshield on November 22nd at Parkland Hospital. I consider some of these people heroic as pressure was placed upon them to retract their observations. Several of these people I've talked with directly and they remain hesitant to discuss their observations and continue to fear for their personal safety. Richard Dudman, who Jim does a beautiful job in his book, a reporter for the St. Louis Dispatch in an article on December 1, 1963 entitled Commentary of an Eyewitness wrote, a few of us noticed the hole in the windshield when the limousine was standing in the emergency entrance after the president had been carried inside. Few of us noticed a hole. I could not approach close enough to see which side was the cup-shaped spot that indicated that a bullet had pierced the glass from the opposite side. Dudman told interviewers that a Secret Service agent, Secret Service agent, pushed him away and the other reporters away when he tried to examine the hole to determine direction. Mark Lane talked about, Dudman told Mark Lane this, and Mark Lane recounted this in a speech in Amherst, New Jersey in 1964. Mr. Dudman, also interesting, I just want to note, had become aware of five bullets being fired in Daly Plaza. He was also critical of the lack of security on the top of the Stemmons overpass, noting that the standing Secret Service orders were to keep the overpass clear. And he's right on that. Daly Plaza was the only place that that overpass or something was not cleared was totally outside normal protocol. But he noted that back then. He also wrote, the south end of the viaduct, and I just, because I'm going to refer to the south end of the overpass in a few minutes, is four short blocks from the office of the Dallas Morning News. And this is really just a curiosity where Jack Ruby was seen before and after the shooting. No one remembered for sure seeing Ruby between 12.15 and 12.45. The shooting was, of course, at 12.30. Former Dallas police officer H.R. Freeman, who was in the motorcade, was interviewed by Gil Toff in 1971 about how he observed the limousine at Parkland Hospital immediately after the shooting. He said, I was right beside it, and I've got this interview on tape. I could have touched it. It was a bullet hole. You could tell what it was. Dallas police officer staff, who was in charge of the motorcade escort to Dallas, observed in later interviewers in later interviews to reporters and radio stations, you could have put a pencil through the hole. In fact, he did, he told me. With extensive interviews with myself, 
I, I, I actually I talk to Stavis Ellis almost every other week, one of the most honest people. He will not, like the guy from Ford, he will not tell me what I want to hear. Very candid. Is unequivocal about the hole. As he recalls these years later, he thought the hole was a little bit lower in the windshield, but he is absolutely certain of its existence. And I'm going to show you it couldn't have been lower. That recollection has to be wrong. He did describe the hole as being on the driver's side of the rearview mirror, which is consistent with other observations and the photographic evidence, which you're going to see. He told me he actually did put a pencil in the hole. He said there were numerous people and police officers at Parkland Hospital who viewed the hole. He vividly remembers that while he was observing the hole, and this story goes, it's not new to me. This goes back years and years and years he's told this. While he was observing the hole, a Secret Service agent came up to him and tried to persuade him that he was seeing a fragment, not a hole. Police officer Stavis Ellis noted, it wasn't a damn fragment, it was a hole. He's been totally consistent, never changed his description. He distinctly recalls another incident at Parkland Hospital. When a young boy who had taken photographs along the motorcade route took pictures of the limousine at Parkland Hospital, a Secret Service agent grabbed the boy's camera and exposed his film by rolling it out of the camera. They had seen this little boy in Daly Plaza shooting pictures. Later on, he's over there at Parkland Hospital after a period of time has passed. He's shooting pictures still of things going on. Secret Service agent comes up, grabs his camera, exposes his film, throws it down, and hands the boy back his camera. This is corroborated by Dallas police officer who, again, I personally talked to, James Corson, about this Secret Service agent destroying the film. They destroy this evidence when you have the identity of the assassin unknown and at a time when it was also uncertain what pictures may have been taken by the boy in Daly Plaza that could shed light on the assassination. Both these officers were absolutely shocked and they remember the boy as being extremely upset that he had been treated in such a manner by the Secret Service agent. Another person who saw the hole, Frank Cormier, another reporter for the St. Louis Dispatch. One of the most intriguing witnesses was Dr. Evalia Glanges. Dr. Glanges was a second-year medical student at Southwestern, which was right next to Parkland Hospital, when it was revealed in class that the president had been shot. She knew that he had been taken to Parkland Hospital, and she went to the outside of the emergency room. By just plain circumstance, she was standing next to the limousine. She leaned against the fender and viewed the hole in the windshield. Looking from the outside, she noted it was a real clean hole. A friend, also a physician, was with Dr. Gl a physician now was with Dr. Glanges that day, and she refuses to speak about this date to this date about that incident. Dr. Glanges will not tell me her name. Her friend has a perception that this disclosure might jeopardize her employment. Glanges told me directly that she looked at the hole and said in a loud voice, gosh, something to the effect, there's a hole in the windshield. When she did that, somebody got into the vehicle and sped away, in her words, almost taking my arm off. As of 19... Glanges... Incredible. As of 1999, right now as we speak today, she is the chair of the surgical department at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. Incredible witness. A credible witness. 
She stated she felt she needed to keep her mouth shut. She is insistent to me the official story is, quote, phony, unquote. She's anticipating retirement in the near future, and that's why she really opened up quite a bit to me. And she's opened up over the years, but I, I, I'm not aware of anybody else that has really interviewed her for in-depth personally. When I interviewed her, she confirmed she was 100% certain, and this is a little thing I do as a lawyer, and you'll see this in my interview, that there was a hole in the windshield in the limousine at Parkland Hospital. January 1992, a caller calls in Larry King's show, states he was there, saw a hole in the windshield. Chicago Special Agent Abraham Bolden Sr., in an interview conducted by author and researcher Vince Palomera, indicated that he was aware of the existence of the hole in the windshield. He told Mr. Palomera, I heard about the hole in the windshield when I was in the Secret Service. The limousine was parked in the south lawn of the White House. They did change the windshield. Interestingly, Michael Payne, husband of Ruth Payne, the woman who Marina Oswald was residing with at the time of the assassination, had an interesting statement in his Warren Commission testimony. He says, somebody said there was a shot through the windshield of the car. So the rumors were spreading. They were there then. People saw it. He heard the rumor. Somebody said there was a shot. There was a hole. Shot through the windshield of the car. So we went down to Daly Plaza and we looked around. It is important to note that no person that I've named here as observing the hole knew more than one of the other people who also observed the hole. It is a powerful statement of independent corroboration. Again, on numerous occasions now, I've been interviewing Willard Hess of Hess and Eisenhart, again, a remarkable man at 93 years of age, who still goes out and gives talks about his company. I asked him, I told him this official story. He had never heard it about the limousine being driven to Detroit on December 20th and then to his place on December 24th. I asked him, I said, was the limousine driven to your company? He says, heck no. He says the limousine was flown into Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton and then brought over to the company. It was flown in for delivery of this company. Absolutely certain. I mean, just an immediate reaction. Hell no. Hell no, it wasn't driven. Right Patterson Air Force Base it was brought in. He recalled seeing a windshield, but could not see any damage to the windshield. He said he heard some allegations about a hole in the floor pan, but his company found no evidence of such a hole. And when you hear my interview, you're going to know why. I inquired as to whether the windshield was changed while in his company's possession. He responded in the affirmative, noting that the Pittsburgh Glass Company was involved, and this was to install bullet-resistant glass. Because he volunteered to me, this was necessary because the windshield that arrived at his company was standard safety glass. When you hear the guy speaking on my tape, this is also important. Again, his company's record shows the limousine arriving on December 13th, but he also made another puzzling statement to me. Again, this is one that I can't figure out that he recalls vividly. He informed me that the Secret Service had told him that the limousine had remained in Dallas for several days after the assassination. Why? It's, you know, obviously that's not true, but why would the Secret Service, I, I can't figure it out why the Secret Service agent would tell him this. He remembers it vividly. He had continual contact with the Secret Service when the car was flown to his company, because I wanted to find that out. Was the Secret Service constant contact with you constantly? 
And there was a man named John Morgan, who I'm trying to track down. I don't know if he's alive today, who was connected to the uh, Secret Service as a technical advisor, was in Ohio at least on a weekly basis. Interestingly, Mr. Morgan's expertise was in explosives, and he recalled that Mr. Morgan would assist in parade routes by examining sewers and drains that could create a security concern for the president. And this is going to be important when I suggest to you there is conclusive evidence where a shot came from. He end, ended, uh, the first time I talked to Mr. Hess, he ended our conversation with a cryptic comment that he believes that, quote, the full story has not been told, quote. He has sent me a lot of material. Unfortunately, it arrived Friday when I'm already here in Minnesota. So I've got a lot to examine that he's, he has sent me a bunch of material. Thank you for listening to episode 207 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.